on today's show. I became an entrepreneur. And as we were discussing before this, I had pure panic for many days on end of where am I going to find this money and how am I going to make this work up into, oh my gosh, I have too many clients and I can't manage all of this work. I need to bring somebody in to, oh gosh, now I've hired this person and I'm responsible for their payroll and all the business just went away. What am I going to do? It sounds as glamorous as, uh, as everyone believes. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely didn't hide under tables and cried several times an afternoon, five days a week. It was, oh gosh. Anyway, I... In truth, really enjoyed that ride. I think the roller coaster of being an entrepreneur is one that we gloss over often because of guys like Gary Vaynerchuk or Tim Ferriss or even Mark Zuckerberg, who make it seem as though it's akin to the rise of celebrity in Hollywood. Yep. You know, everybody just has an idea, bunch of meetings, it yeah. works, and then magically you have millions of dollars and it's just all a gravy train that's just pouring money into your bank account. That is not true for 99.999% of us. Yep. And the reality is, like any other business, the hours are grueling. The pace is terrible. You hate everything at times. And at times, there are glorious moments of absolute perfection. And the rest of it is really hard. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Creator Institute Podcast. Your host, Eric Koster. Jason Nellis is a triple threat. <laughs> when we talk a lot about creators, we talk about uh, the power to use creation events, these sort of these events that they can use to differentiate themselves, to stand out, and to really transform their trajectory. And Jason is one of the people who has has done three of them in his early career and used these creation events to transition from uh, a role as kind of an early employee at Hulu into an executive at one of the the fastest growing kind of early stage startups in Silicon Valley. Jason is someone who's been able to create a podcast season as a tool to stand out. He's done a video show that he's put together, and he's also run and put on an event. Uh, at some point, he promises me he's going to write a book, and uh, and I sort of feel like he gets credit for it. He was sort of my assistant in the first version of teaching this class to a, a set of young uh, undergrads, and so I feel like maybe he does get the quadruple threat. We'll see. He's still holding out for it. But what I do think is important to understand is that oftentimes people get fascinated by saying, I've got to got to do these things faster and quicker. And, and Jason really shows us the power of sort of stitching these pieces together to really build this sort of ramp to get him where he wanted to go. He left sort of LA and sort of had to figure out his own way out here on the East Coast before using these creation events to sort of be able to unlock these cool opportunities where now he is uh, the first employee for uh, a Kleiner-backed company in San Francisco. He is uh, the face of this company that is doing a new way to think about unboxing uh, videos and, and unboxing products. Jason's an awesome guy. I uh, have to say one of my favorite people and favorite humans. Always someone I can count on when I need, and uh, and uh, he's doing cool stuff. So Jason Nellis, everyone, I think you're going to enjoy the conversation. Jason Nellis. Mm. God, it's so great to have you back in in town. Thanks, man. It's, a, it's a real pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. This is fun. I know. So, so, you know, we have a long history together, many adventures. Some may say too long. Too long, Far indeed. Too long. Yes, and uh, and and now that you've left the fair district and and moved back out to the Bay Area, you're uh, you're much more tolerable. I appreciate I that. Yeah, thank you. It's uh, I, one one of the reasons that they ran me out of town is that I had become quote insufferable mm. end quote, um, which I think frankly is too kind of a word, but it was nice of them to do that. <laughs> That's great. So so I think you know I I'm excited to chat with you. I think uh, you know I did I did some cyber stalking, and we're gonna. We're going to chat a little bit about your checkered past, excellent, and and talk about some of those those moments that you may not uh, look too fondly on. No, it's fine. That thing with the collie, not my fault. <laughs> and uh, but I think I think part of what what I really want to chat with you a little bit is you've had some really interesting experience as a creator and some um, different mediums that we talk a lot about books. And although you have had uh, a lot of experience with with me working with some of our our young authors. A lot of your background is in uh, in other arts, and and I think and as as we talk about with creators, typically they they create in one of four mediums: um, the in depth written, which is often books, um, events, and you've had experience in that uh, podcast audio, which you've had a lot of experience as well as as video. So I think I'm looking forward to talking with you because I think you check all three of the other boxes <laughs> and have a deep knowledge on on the first. So you're sort of like the 
You're like the utility infielder. Uh, you know, many have called me a Swiss Army knife, much to my detriment. So I appreciate that. I like uh, it. Would it help if I gave my background a little bit? I mean, or should I? Should we just dive right into the? Let's the dive background? in because I'll okay. probably share a lot of those things about you uh, in, in my own Excellent. in my own mean way. Because mm. I really want to start out by talking about the fact that you had this aspiration as a young man that you were going to be the next great thespian. Yes. Um, Tell me a little bit about your decision to uh, to pursue acting as a profession and and in college, and then the uh, the stint out to L.A. to fulfill those dreams of being an out of work actor who's waiting tables. Oh, I never had to do the waiting tables part. Thank goodness. No, um, my tendency towards performance was very natural as a kid. I was always that kid in the restaurant who wanted to wave to everybody and say hi and memorized lines from Monty Python movies as early as possible. I think I can still quote all of Caddyshack by heart. <laughs> um, and uh, when I was in high school, I was in every play I could get my hands on. I even directed and produced a couple. But um, moving to undergrad in uh, at Northwestern was uh, a no-brainer. Uh, I wanted to go to a top-tier uh, theater program, and I wanted to pursue something that also had a fallback if that didn't work out. Uh, and with my surprising parents' blessing, they let me go to Northwestern <laughs> to pursue theater because they knew it was a liberal arts degree, yeah. which I think was the first in a series of steps that actually worked out very well for me. Um, many of my friends who have uh, Bachelor of Fine Arts degrees have had trouble finding work and mm. do the very typical LA hunting for you know jobs while at the same time waiting tables experience. Um, I made it through four years of undergrad, spent some time in Chicago, and then left for LA and managed to land to start my star career as an actor right when the writer strike hit in 2007. Perfect timing. It was great. I have a knack for excellent timing. The, the secret to comedy, as they've always said, is timing. Uh, is timing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, the, uh, the writer strike turned out to be a blessing and a curse for me because um, while it completely, for the moment, derailed my aspirations to be an actor, it forced me to look outside of that hmm. world, which had been, for me, very much tunnel vision. Um, when I realized that there was other opportunities, particularly in Los Angeles, where I could pursue my love of entertainment without necessarily becoming an actor and a, a part of this larger machine where I had to be fed into it, I could right. actually be part of the machine that was doing the building. Um, I was very fortunate and was able to lock a job in at Hulu, which nobody knew about at the time. Yeah, this is before uh, Hulu was a Hulu. Right. Yeah. I mean, I was employee, I was full-time employee number 45, and now there are about 2,000 people. Wow. So I was, was very fortunate. Uh, and those five years, I developed a tremendous set of skills uh, that that very much played into my longer term career, um, not only with the performative aspect and being able to give presentations when doing recruiting or hosting guys like Bob Iger at our offices and being able to, to talk to him and not feel intimidated by his presence, uh, all the way to managing client relationships and ultimately being in charge of the relationship with NBC Universal. So I was in charge of managing our day-to-day dealings with uh, SNL and 30 Rock and Parks and Recreation and those product projects as well as um, their cable networks. And so um, you, 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 know, you have to appreciate that the kid who started really as the beer guy <laughs> right. was eventually put in charge of $100 million in annual revenue uh, and wonder what they were thinking. And yeah, maybe if they were perhaps they? drunk on the beer from years prior. Well, I want to go back to your, your, uh, your sort of aspirations of leaving Chicago to mm-hmm. go out to LA because, you know, we oftentimes have a, an, an idea of, of who we're going to be. Who is, who is the actor that you're going to be? I, I, I'm going to tell you before you go, and then you can tell me, but I always have this, you sort of being the, the wisecracking sidekick to sort of the, the that, that would be my kind of, you know, sort of doppelganger for you, is you'd be the one who's got that quick joke a little bit that sort of... Uh, That's not doppelganger. That's called typecasting. <laughs> I'm typecasting you yeah. as that that yeah. that that witty brazen guy who sort of is always the one that the uh, the laugh track is going to go right after. Yeah, I would have done really well in Big Bang Theory. I think killed it. Um, yeah. But actually, to be fair, that's that is actually not far from what I assumed I would be cast as. Mm-hmm. There are a number of roles for guys who are lab assistants with uh, a little bit of attitude, kind of mm-hmm. a thing. And I I sort of presumed that that's at least where I would start. Yeah. Um, in truth, I many years later realized that that's probably as far as I would have ascended without serious additional work work. I'm not sure I would have been terribly excited to pursue in the end, that part of performance. I really enjoy the work and the study of it. If you give me a a piece of Shakespeare, I will workshop that till it's dead with somebody. Um, but I'm not actually all that excited to put it up on stage and show it to a lot of people. I really enjoy the work. I don't necessarily enjoy the eight shows a week part of that on theater or the 14 hour grueling days on a TV set. I've learned since then that, the work part of it is not actually as exciting to me as the 
uh, learning and engaging and the human interaction part of it, which turns out is actually to my benefit because lots of other stuff like, you know, like the stuff I do now, much more towards that and much more engaging in a, in a more personal level uh, in that kind of work. So I got lucky. It turned out that my dreams of being an actor were totally the wrong direction, but I had the 95% of other skills to go other directions and be even happier. Yeah. And, and, you know, in, in a lot of ways, did you, did you have a sense, you know, when you're, when you start something new and early Hulu at the time was sort of this interesting idea. Streaming wasn't something cutting the cord was, was just sort of an idea. What were some of the indicators that you saw that this might be a trend that was much bigger than, uh, than most people realized when you were just starting out at Hulu? What were some of those signals? Well, early on, the logic of it made a lot of sense, which I think is important in any startup. If you can't see a clear delineation in terms of the value proposition comparative to what's happening in the world right now, you're already in the woods and you're never going to get out. Yeah. So when I started, the recruiter first out of the gate was, you know, we're replacing DVDs. And I'm like, great. I I'm hate in. DVDs. Right. I hate shopping right. for DVDs. I just want to be able to, to magically You, you strike me up. as a Laserdisc guy. You are a big Laserdisc guy. You know, guy. I was really into Betamax back before <laughs> I was born, uh, apparently, um, if that ages me at all. Um, no, for me, the logic of it made sense at first, but then as we started to really prepare for and launch about a few months, I think it was two or three months after I started, uh, and the initial response told me that we were onto something much larger than just a product people would enjoy. Um, and then over the, the 10 years that followed that, the shift in entertainment from home video really driving everything to now there being such a disruption in video and pro- excuse me, content consumption across mm-hmm. the board to give context when TV shows is an example, you know, back in the sixties and seventies, you could not make a profit on a television show until you sold it into syndication, selling it into syndication usually required about a hundred episodes being produced, which is about four to five years worth of broadcast. You were very, very, very lucky to get a show to that length to sell it into syndication. Otherwise most TV studios had to sort of assume a loss on it. Hmm. Home video and DVDs changed that. It made it so that you could sell every season as an individual DVD set pack. Our coming onto the scene helped disrupt that even further. So now you could actually really start to monetize an episode the day of or even the day after its broadcast. And for me, as somebody who, who fell in love with entertainment from an early age and wanted to be part of this world, seeing those shifting tides opening, opened my eyes to the very first time that there were larger uh, waves at work, right? There was an energy in entertainment that wasn't just producing lots of things for movies and TV shows, but there were whole subsets of economies where I could find much happiness in engaging with those and building those. And being part of Hulu gave me that education to learn how to see those things and to be ultimately, not, not to say more, quote unquote, than just an actor, but to not simply be relegated to one very small right. sliver of it that I could learn to find my place with a greater skill set and more confidence that what I could do would be valuable to other people. And you also shared with me that, that you started to see how there was this bigger field afoot too, which was to say that small independent creators might have a platform. Like Hulu at the start, a lot of people assumed it was the big networks, but now these independent creators are starting to have a platform where they can release their content on. It was part of what you started to lead. Talk a little bit about uh, as the platform evolved to become more of a sort of a democracy of content producers having access to to audiences. Well, I think beyond Hulu, when you look at the larger uh, shifts in entertainment since its inception, right? Uh, Netflix started as a DVD rental service and then went into streaming shortly thereafter. And really, to their credit, they broke the mold on original content first. They went directly to creators, gave them the latitude and budgets to create great shows like uh, Orange is the New Black or House of Cards or something like that. And Hulu in its early days really struggled with that. I was part of those early efforts. And we worked with high-end creators, but we didn't have the budgets at that time. And this was years before The Handmaid's Tale, which you know won its uh, massive set of awards and has really put Hulu on the on the map, so to speak, in that regard. We early on were not terribly bullish in user-generated content, which is what made up YouTube at the time. It was a lot of cat videos, a lot of, you know, David after dentist kind of stuff. Um, What we have observed since then, however, is a number of creators who come onto platforms like YouTube and developed their audiences and developed their voice and developed their content in a way that has allowed them to then go to places like Amazon or to Hulu, or to Netflix, or even onto YouTube now with YouTube Red, and really enjoy creative freedom and the budgets to allow themselves to really express in a, in a way that is tangible to their audiences. So um, 
for me, the formula has always been you need deep pockets, you need creative freedom, and you need the talent to back up that creative freedom. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have all three of those, you're dead out of the water. No question. Um, without those, without any one of those three, let alone all three, you don't end up in a position to really express yourself the way that you want to. You cut corners. Uh, or if you're, you know, if you're working with other people and their voices are taking over yours, the, the vision gets muddled and ultimately doesn't work. Uh, personally, I'm, I'm now much more bullish on the independent creator on a platform like mm-hmm. YouTube who has total creative freedom. They might be restricted by resources, but they'll learn to fix that over time and they'll eventually give themselves all three of those uh, characteristics to eventually build a, a you know, multi-million user follower. Uh, to me, that's, that's the future in many ways. I think that yeah. there's a lot of opportunity there. And and I think your your story as an entrepreneur has has some twists that we'll talk about there. But I think one of the things that's interesting, you know, that I often share with people is uh, those early jobs are one about learning, but also about building the network of people that are going to change your trajectory. And I think one of those people that actually connected us was the CTO of Hulu, Eric Fang. Talk about how um, how you and Eric met, and a little bit about how you uh, sort of endeared yourself to someone who is now um, kind of. Uh, uh, in a lot of ways, a kingmaker in, in the valley. <laughs> well, he's going to hear this and he's going to think, kingmaker, that's yeah. a nice title. I should yeah. have that printed on a t-shirt. I think he should. Um, and given that he's currently my boss, I probably can't <laughs> say, oh, no, I'm teasing. No, uh, the the value of relationships to me is epitomized in my relationship with Eric. So Eric was uh, the CTO of Hulu, as you mentioned. He was also the CTO of Flipboard. He's currently a partner at Kleiner Perkins, which is one of the major venture capital firms in Silicon Valley. Um, he's also hands down one of the most kind, generous people you're ever going to meet. Mm-hmm. And my two years working for he him, should have a much bigger ego. I mean, and it will hear this. He should like he's so you know unassuming. You get to know him well enough. <laughs> it's okay. No, the reality is that that even from his time at at Hulu, um, and for context, uh, he became the CTO at Hulu because Hulu purchased a company that he had started in Beijing that was dealing specifically in annotating YouTube videos. So in fact. He was on the the video and streaming train long before other people were. Um, But Eric has, in my mind, uh, been epitomized as the the example of how you do it right. He's always been eager to look at larger trends, but also to be in the weeds and solve small problems that add up to larger ones. Uh, My working for him was less about being mentored by him in that time as much as him saying, here are the things you can do, pick the three that are interesting, and then go do them right. And learning to take projects on and ask for help when I needed, and then to make sure that I didn't bother people when I really didn't need the help. Those kinds of skills became incredibly valuable. And it was, sometimes it was dumb little things like, I need you to figure out how to, fi- how to feed 25 devs mm-hmm. versus it's you and two developers and you're going to Cornell for three days and you need to structure the recruiting time so that it makes the most value for everybody involved. Mm-hmm. And working with him in those early years also provided me with a number of relationships that have come back to pay dividends years later. Mm-hmm. The company that I'm involved with now is made up primarily of people that have worked with Eric on and off for years, myself included. And that affords us a language you don't get when you're building a startup with people you haven't worked with before. You mm-hmm. get the ability to rapidly iterate, to develop ideas without having to mold them over for days at a time, and ultimately to become really nimble the way that a startup has to be to succeed. And a lot of that, I would say, is due in no small part to Eric's ability to cultivate great talent, myself not included, <laughs> and uh, to engage them in a way that is both an openly democratic process of discussion and then determining the right path and saying, this is what we're committing to. Let's do it. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you, uh, you know, if the, uh, the leave and come back sort of uh, mentality here with, with Eric, you had this relationship at Hulu and in some ways there was the right time for you to, uh, to come home, son. And you, you brought you back to DC, which is how we, we first connected. Um, talk about that journey from kind of coming from a place of, um, you know, this company that was, you know, just making it, you were figuring out sort of things to coming to DC and try to have to reinvent yourself. Um, tell me about that first, you know, four to six months when you were in DC trying to figure out where are you, where, where was the second act for Jason Ellis? Well, if you were to title that chapter in my life story, it would definitely be pure unbridled panic. <laughs> um, I, moving back to DC was very much a personal decision. Mm-hmm. I'd spent five years at Hulu. I was fairly confident that if I'd stayed there longer, it would probably stagnate my career a little bit. And in retrospect, I was right. Uh, there were opportunities that would have popped up later, but for me, it was the right time to go. Uh, moving back to DC was an opportunity to re-engage with my family, who's all based here, um, to sort of reset a little bit. I'd had some health problems in college that I hadn't really dealt with emotionally. So it was an opportunity to come home, 
be safe and figure all of that out. Um, unfortunately, I sort of neglected the part where I was going to find a job when I came <laughs> back here. And for the first four months, I was just scrambling to find something. Yeah. Uh, hot take for everybody. I don't think moving home at the end of October was a good plan for me because November and December aren't awesome hiring times. So it wasn't until January, early February of that year where I landed a job through a Hulu connection at PBS and in their digital distribution division, which was totally a match for my skills, but ultimately unsatisfying. And so for the first six months, I vacillated between panic and boredom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this isn't to, to, you know, poo poo on my former PBS colleagues. I don't think that any of them would be surprised that they'd hear this now because I only stayed there eight months. Yeah. Um, When I left, I was just determined to do anything else. I was very fortunate that because I had some experience in social media and marketing in that vein, because of my time at Hulu, I was able to cobble together a marketing consultancy that turned into a small agency. You became an entrepreneur. I became an entrepreneur. And as we were discussing before this, I had pure panic for many days on end of where am I going to find this money and how am I going to make this work up into, oh my gosh, I have too many clients and I can't manage all of this work. I need to bring somebody into, oh gosh, now I've hired this person and I'm responsible for their payroll and all the business just went away. What am I going to do? It sounds as glamorous as, uh, as everyone believes. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely didn't hide under tables and cried several times an afternoon, five days a week. It was, oh gosh. Anyway, I, in truth, really enjoyed that ride. I think the roller coaster of being an entrepreneur is one that we gloss over often because of guys like Gary Vaynerchuk or Tim Ferriss or even Mark Zuckerberg, who make it seem as though it's akin to the rise of celebrity in Hollywood. Yeah. You know, everybody just has an idea, a bunch of meetings, it yeah. works, and then magically you have millions of dollars and it's just all a gravy train that's just pouring money into your bank account. That is not true for 99.999% of us. Yeah. And the reality is, like any other business, the hours are grueling, the pace is terrible. You hate everything at times, and at times there are glorious moments of absolute perfection, and the rest of it is really hard. And I'm fortunate that my time at Hulu, the same way that other people's other jobs have helped inform them the skills that they need to succeed, I, it turned out, got a really good education on how to, how to learn quickly at my time at Hulu, mm-hmm. which is absolutely the, the one skill that, that you need to do that. The other being you have to learn to be uncomfortable and be okay with that, which yep. is, I think, the two of them the the foundation of any any decent if not good entrepreneur yeah and i think you 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 know as you said that time was uh humbling but also instructive in terms of the importance of of sort of building a brand building a business and i think you 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 undertook a couple of projects that you may not have sort of known at the time would sort of inform everything else but i, I want to talk a little bit about kind of a couple projects while you were in DC um, and one including the the collaboration we had on together but let me start by talking about um, your podcast mm-hmm. adventure because I think um, when you started your podcast it was still early in the uh, early in it and I think there's a the there's still a website up of mm-hmm. your podcast yeah. called I'm not sure it goes anywhere called <laughs> called startup jab yeah and in and for someone who has a design pedigree uh, it's it's really poorly designed. Yeah, it is. It's, it's, <laughs> I, I can't take credit for that. Teague Hopkins, who uh, co-hosted that show with me, very much more the technical mind. And fortunately, for to his credit, he is not a designer, but he is a phenomenal uh, product. Uh, excuse me, project and product manager, as well as a workflow designer. Yeah. So that website was never going to be. It's never going to win any design awards, but it was really good at being effective at getting you exactly what you needed to get to to listen to us. Yep. So, so tell me about the the thought process of of uh, deciding to do a podcast. You're in the midst of building a business, and what does what was the sort of the crux that said I should do a podcast uh, and and I should I should try and, and attack this. Well, I would say first off that any business, regardless of what you're in, can benefit from content marketing. There's always going to be an audience, even if it's infinitesimally small, that will benefit from you putting yourself in some sort of sight, sound, and motion media to engage with that subject matter. And uh, building a small marketing consultancy, I knew that I needed to put us out there more and was working on a couple of different efforts on social media more directly. Uh, And at the same time, a platform came out called Blab, which no longer exists, I'm sad to say. But the gentleman who built uh, Bebo, which was a social mm. network back in the day, had tried to reinvigorate that brand, and Blab was one of their early attempts. What made it interesting was that it was like Google Hangouts, but it was as much for broadcasting as it was for hosting conversations. You had four people in a grid who could live stream at the same time via camera, and the quality was halfway decent, and it, g- it gave you the opportunity for a chat room as well attached to that. 
But what really made it special was that in addition to the broadcasting portion, you would get delivered, if you so chose to, the video and audio recordings of your conversations, which made podcasting super easy. Yeah. So um, I started to play with it. I really fell in love with the platform and I showed it to Teague. And we both agreed that it would be a great opportunity for us to start to host some conversations and just see if anybody was interested. Yeah. And within a couple of episodes, the guys at Blab noticed us. So we would get on their front page. We started developing a small following and it became a weekly ritual for about 35 or so weeks. We got very good at building uh, conversations and interviewing people and ultimately playing in the sandbox of podcasting. Um, unfortunately, by the time we got around to episode 30, 35, uh, I decided that the marketing consultancy wasn't interesting to me anymore, sold the business, Teague was working on something else, and I'd taken some time to go travel. So that episode sort of was like, well, Jason's going to go travel to Europe and we'll see when he gets back. And that's the end of it. Yeah, I- it's, it's uh, the, the last episode in here is still up yeah. and... Uh, and, and and I listened to part of it. It's, it's actually a fun episode, but I think the the header to this one says, we're back from our quasi-planned hiatus and delving deep inside Jason's mind as he plans an even bigger break to process existential issues and walk hundreds of miles and eat lots of food. Um, Which I did all of that. Yeah. Including the food part. Let me just say Spain on the ground, best food ever. Amazing. Mm. Um, and, and you know, you did have a lot of uh, sort of a diverse set of guests. You had people who are, um, you know, in the business of baking, you have people who are you know, building dating companies. A lot on sort of the future of video gaming. Um, kind of what was the the what was the goal of producing an episode? Um, in terms of like, what did you hope would come from it, other than delighting the the read the the listeners? Um, I think for us, Startup Jab was really an attempt to build an additional layer of conversation around startups and entrepreneurship across the board. I, personally. The, the cult of personality that is built around Silicon Valley, and as somebody who lives there now, I can speak to this even more truthfully, but the, the cult of personality around Silicon Valley and the idea of celebrity as it pertains to startups is, in my mind, very one-sided and unfortunate in that regard, right? In any instance where all you're talking about are the same dozen names over and over again as the people that you hold up as luminaries in that world really belies the 99% of other people underneath who are just working hard and just trying to build something sustainable and trying to innovate in a space where they have so many things against them. So Startup Jab was an attempt to really broaden that conversation to say, there are so many people in the world who may not have the title of CEO in their startup, but they are entrepreneurs themselves. They're starting up in lots of different ways. One of my favorite guests was uh, my friend Lauren, who used to be the press secretary at NASA. Mm. And hearing how they not only themselves are trying to innovate and build and grow with with ever-increasingly difficult budgets within which to work, while at the same time, other people utilize NASA technology for all sorts of things, was a fascinating conversation. And to me, really epitomized what we were aiming for. We wanted our audience to be engaged. We wanted them to talk about us afterwards because obviously we wanted the audience to grow, but we also wanted them to come away with something that they would never otherwise be able to appreciate. Lauren's world when she was working at NASA was very specific to working with guys like the Washington Post and New York Times and NBC4 and trying to get the message of NASA in that way. Seldom did she have the opportunity to really sit down and talk about the nuts and bolts of her work. Mm-hmm. And to us, that was the best part of right. what we got to do. So, so learning not just the, you have to have a grand vision of your product and you have to know 10 years out that you're going to disrupt. Like It was none of the buzzwords you hear. And right. it was really about like, every day I have to get up and I have to make sure my boss is in the office by nine because mm-hmm. if he misses that interview, the whole day is screwed. Yep. And hearing about the real you know, ground level problems of entrepreneurship across multiple worlds, I think was really valuable to our audiences. We got great feedback. Yeah. It is my disappointment that Teague and I did not continue that only because I totally torpedoed it. I'm looking <laughs> for blame. It's my fault. But it, it really was for us a great opportunity to develop a conversation that at the time wasn't happening. Now there's 20 podcasts that are doing that, sure. all with much better finesse than we ever did. But Teague and I really felt that this was a great way for us to share our voices and did in fact inform many of the other efforts that he and I have both pursued since. And I think what's interesting too is, you know, obviously as you are a, an, you know, running an agency and you're talking to people who are experts, you know, like Lauren in the world of PR, it gives you this layer of credibility to say, uh, l- let me show you how I've helped talk to experts in crafting press strategies and those sorts of things. So in some ways, it's it's a perfect example of your ability to sort of translate, uh, to demonstrate kind of your own knowledge of marketing and, and you know those and those pieces. Um, any kind of uh, any kind of outcomes that you that were ever surprising from from the podcast that was. The only true surprising outcome was every now and again, somebody would come up to me and go, oh my gosh, you're the startup jab guy. And like that to me was 
bizarre. Uh, and that happens very infrequently now, but it was a little bit, I wouldn't say that we were in any way popular, mm -hmm. but every now and again, we, somebody would on the street go, Oh, somebody sent me your podcast. It's nice to meet you. And I was like, how did that happen? Mm -hmm. Oh gosh. Um, so yeah, I mean, uh, the, the one, the genuinely, I mean, uh, in terms of skill sets, surprise that came out of it. Um, I am no longer afraid to do an interview like this. Yeah. I, and to me, you know, the, the first 10 episodes are some of the most painful content I think I'll ever produce because even though I'm good at conversation, I wasn't good at interviewing. And right. There's a cadence to it, a conversational uh, protocol to it. And mm -hmm. early on, I'm talking over people and just being jerkish as I mm -hmm. usually am. Surprise, um, surprise. Yeah, shocker. Um, but we, uh, I think what we both learned out of it was how to conduct an interview right. in a way that is not only engaging for the guest, but provides value for an audience right. and ultimately helps to build that audience. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Tell me also a little bit about um, the, you know, one of the other experiences you had is, is you did sort of start to develop a, a cultish following in some ways in, in DC, if that's a, if that's a way to describe it is you, start, you started to become a, a thought leader in DC. For sure, in the I, DC Tech. I think that's a very generous thing to say. It's, it's fair, but you you were involved in helping put on some new events in DC to sort of bring the community, um, which is another example of sort of creating something that it kind of demonstrates competency and, and in some ways levels levels up your your, your play. Talk about uh, putting on some of the events you put together uh, in DC and, and how that played into um, kind of your uh, your own world. Well, I when I moved to DC. Um, uh, you actually put me in touch with uh, the organization here in DC called Fosterly, which uh, has been instrumental for many years in helping to develop, uh, you know, some of DC Tech's uh, best companies and and to really provide uh, a conversation starter in their either Day of Fosterly, which uh, I helped put on, or a Collaborate Conference, which was a, a thousand person conference we put on at the Ronald Reagan Center. Um, you know, we in addition to that. Um, my friends and I were uh, part of the DC Lean Startup Circle, so I got to learn, you know, the Lean Startup methodology from the ground up. Startup Weekend, uh, you know, the the real lesson from all of that is put yourself out there, yep. engage in the process, be a newbie. You know, yeah. there's a great ad out for I can't remember which game it is, but the idea is that like everybody starts out as a noob and everybody gets frustrated and they throw chairs and they hate themselves, but eventually you're not a noob anymore. Eventually, you get that first win, you get that first success, you learn the hard skills. And I think that being involved in those events taught me which of my skills from theater and theater production applied to things like conferences, to meetup groups, to uh, day-long strategy sessions and study groups and learning how to do things like marketing branding sessions and all of that. Um, and really what came out of that was just being bad at it at first, <laughs> being okay, being really bad at it at first. Um, but to me, the, the event side of things is really just like putting on a big party. Mm -hmm. right? There's a lot of considerations you have to think about. It's the food, it's the drink, it's when are people going to arrive, when are they going to leave, what are they going to do in the meantime, is there you know, music in the background, etc. I'm a novice at that compared to many of my friends who specialize in event production and strategy, but you learn very quickly that, that presentation and experience go hand in hand, and that that applies outside of things like conferences and parties. It applies to when somebody comes to your website, as an example. Mm -hmm. That experience is really important. Right. Your credibility trends in part on whether somebody comes to the site and thinks, wow, this is really well done yeah. or thinks, wow, this is amateur hour at its worst. So um, nowadays I'm not doing as much of that. The right. events that I do are much more uh, asynchronous. You know, we're filming uh, content right. and putting it on YouTube, but that's all an event. And I'm yeah. thinking about it from the perspective of when somebody hits play, if they're not engaged in what I'm producing and they're not stuck all the way through, I have not succeeded yet. Yeah, and I think so. To, to your your point, we we foreshadowed a little bit this existential crisis. In some ways, the podcast and uh, the events that you started to do, in some ways, had uh, almost a, a desired effect to to the nth degree, where you started to get busy, have big team, um, and start to think about what you really wanted to do. And in some ways, led to that existential crisis, right? I mean, if you really you keep saying that existential crisis, like I haven't had twelve. Listen, before. you know, I. I <laughs> You know, you, you're it's uh, therapy hour with Jason Nellis. <laughs> it's, it's what we're gonna hear. But it's interesting to see that, like that, that um, from from being freaked out uh, to the first four months here of how um, in the God's name am I gonna do it? To in some ways, you filled out your your dance card so much so that it sort of did lead you to say, like, all right, what do I want to be doing? Well, I think the the nine years of time between graduating college and and ultimately leaving DC. Um, there were so many con uh, sort of conflating uh, things that happened during that time between my five years at Hulu and my time here and filling out that dance card, so to speak. 
Um, I realized uh, during my time off, my self-imposed hiatus last year, <laughs> uh, for clarification, I hiked the Camino de Santiago in Spain, which I highly recommend. It's a yeah. beautiful month-long walk. Um, it, to me, what it, what it ended up codifying was that I really did feel passionately about startups and entertainment, mm-hmm. that I wanted to find something that would be in that vein. I was okay that the very next thing didn't necessarily take me exactly to that place, but that it would eventually put me on that path in some way. And I was just going to trust the process. So uh, November of last year, I started applying to any number of different companies. I let friends who were all over the country send me leads that I could pursue. I was talking to BuzzFeed. I was talking to uh, Snapchat at one point, Uber. Um, not seriously. None of those people took me seriously. Mm. But um, a friend As they of mine, shouldn't. No, clearly. But um, I ended up getting a role as a senior manager of marketing at Vizio, the TV manufacturer. And they had a San Francisco office that served their ad technology division. And I ended up moving out there. Uh, the job was not going to be for me long term. I think that was clear to everybody from the beginning, but I was perfectly content to just apply my various skills to that and figure out what I was going to do as I got my sea legs. Uh, and then, of course, within six months of that, Eric Fang, the savior <laughs> Back to of Silicon Eric Valley. Fang, um, kingmaker of Silicon kingmaker, Valley, by the way. Uh, humble kingmaker. Humble kingmaker. Uh, no, we ended up having a lunch five months into my time at Hulu, at uh, Vizio, excuse me, where he was, you know, it was as though we were catching up. He's like, hey, I'm doing this thing. You should come and work for me. I was just like, I should come and work for you. Yeah. And so that was it. And that turned out to be exactly the thing I had sort of been hoping for. Um, and that got you your sort of your first real shot at sort of being on the founding team of a sort of a Silicon Valley fast growing yeah. startup, right? You'd come into Hulu, uh, you know, when it was, it, it had product market. It had fit. product market right. already. It, you knew what it was, right. lots of funding. And then you sort of came to DC and in a lot of ways figured out your own entrepreneurial chops. Uh, but it wasn't, you weren't building a fast growing venture. It was, uh, San Francisco was going to give you that that education in spades. Yes. And in fact, um, my one year in San Francisco now has probably been equivalent to my five years at Hulu or my four years in DC, without yeah. a doubt. Dog years. Yeah, very much, um, which is why I'm showing my age. These bags under these God. eyes, they're never going away no, now. Thank God this is just audio. Oh, gosh. You can see them if you go on our YouTube channel. It's not great. Um, <laughs> no, the reality is that, that, um, that joking about Eric's kingmaking aside, the one thing that Eric has a knack for is uh, finding talent and putting it together in a room and being able to, even if we're not at product market fit in the first couple of months, know that there is something there that can be turned into magic. And um, we got very lucky that, uh, you know, when I joined the company that I'm a part of now called Packaged had just raised their Series A and they have contributions from Kleiner Perkins, uh, Google Ventures, now GV, and Forerunner Ventures. And from the get-go- We call we, those contributions investments, Jason. Yes, yes, yes. we call those investments- yes. I like to think of his contributions to the larger <laughs> effort. But the Series A uh, was um, uh, GV and Forerunner. And that to me was immediately a sign that, that there was already something here, yep. right? Yep. It isn't just, well, we're putting some money into this and seeing where it goes. Um, when you have Google backing you and, and obviously their, you know, the whole alphabet system of products and services uh, with Forerunner who did things like, you know, the investments on Jet.com and um, Warby Parker and uh, lots of other big retail brands you start to think, okay, well, well, there's clearly something here that we're going we're gonna to build that's interesting. Um, and so a few months after I joined, we launched at CES, uh, excuse me, uh, CES at E3 in, uh, in LA. Um, and from the get-go, we were like, oh, we're not fitting the market the way that we thought we would. Hmm. And that actually turned out to be a blessing. Yeah. It turned out, in fact, that the education that we've all gotten in the last six months around rethinking our product fit, figuring out which pivots we were going to perform, and ultimately shifting the product substantially, um, I would not have been able to do that had the last nine years of other things been thrown at me. And being in a place of discomfort, because when I joined, I was not supposed to be a host. I was not supposed to be on-air talent. I was going to just do the marketing. Um, But since I'm the only guy with any experience being in front of a camera, hey, guess what you're going to do next? All right, let's give it a try. And I think that's a great great summation in some ways of the fact that this guy who was nervous and uncomfortable interviewing is now uh, the host of a daily uh, video channel, video series yeah. um, on unboxing of products is uh, is quite an interesting one, and you know, in some ways, is the evidence that you could do it. You know, it's it's uh, they they probably could have said, "Hey, we should hire someone," but they could could look at at you and uh, and your your witty sidekickness and know that you're, you know the, what? Can we stop? <laughs> I'm a leading man. I don't need this witty sidekick. Nothing. You would uh, you would be great as a big band, big bang uh, fourth or fifth yeah, guy, the roommate who never Great. showed up. Yeah. 
Um, I'm like, I'm like Maris on Frasier. You never see me. No, not at all. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, and so what has it been like, you know, coming in and saying, Hey, uh, let's build a, a video presence again. Now you're the fourth, you're, you're the, the checking off the fourth box here in this, uh, this creator connection, um, building a, a video presence. Um, now you're, you've got to kind of go out and figure out how to do something daily right. and also learn how to be compelling and interesting in front of a camera. What was that experience like saying, we're going to do this? Uh, like everything else, it's been a complete, you know, just destruction of every other thought I had about the process ahead of time. Um, but it's been incredibly educational to try to build a workflow that is not only sustainable, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's not going to eat your bank account and it's not going to cost you $40,000 out of the gate. Um, I've also come to very much appreciate the guys who do this for a living, truly, because mm-hmm. it is really hard. And what we're doing pales in comparison to the amount of work that they put in. Yeah, you're doing about what, six to eight minutes a day? Um, it's six to eight minutes a day, and it's five days a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and the first lesson in that by far is how great process is when it works really well. Mm-hmm. So our process is relatively straightforward. Um, I source the videos that we use in the show. I have a production manager who helps me come up with the pertinent notes and sections we're going to use within the show. And then we go film. And filming has gone from being a 45-minute self-immolation experience <laughs> where I'm just constantly yelling at myself for bad takes to 15 minutes of this is the stuff we just got to get on film and let's get it done. And once that is all finished, we ship the notes and the sections that we want to use as well as the footage that we've created to a post-production editor that we previously worked with at Hulu. And he takes anywhere from 90 to you know 90 minutes to two hours to produce the final version of the video. He puts it up on YouTube. We clean it up for copy and edit and tags and all the stuff that we need to do. And it goes live the next morning. And we do that now five days a week. I don't know if we're going to keep doing it five days a week right. in the new year, but it's been a really educational process. Uh, well, rather, reg- really educational experience. The process is key. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't keep throwing curveballs at it. You just have to be comfortable that at mm-hmm. a certain point, you're building the thing and you're going to keep running the thing mm-hmm. and you're going to make slight tweaks to the thing until you're ready to blow it up and start all over again. Yep. Um, I imagine our government could learn from some of that experience, <laughs> but that's neither here nor there. Um, but the other part too is, is there is in fact a level of comfort one can develop in front of cameras that doesn't require theater training. Right. Um, one of the other folks I work with is a woman who has been in beauty and makeup for years. Um, she's done sales, she's done customer relations, she's done you know product experience kind of stuff. And she is now working on a number of other efforts that we're doing, including a, a beauty and makeup vertical that we're, we're in process on. And uh, the experience of working with her and her developing her on-camera persona really shows that you don't need the training. You just need to learn to be comfortable. You need to learn to have a conversation with a camera or a microphone and just know that you may feel silly at first, but that silliness goes away very quickly. And it really boils down to self-confidence yep. and just knowing that if you do it often enough, you'll get it right. What was the what was the uh, the the lead time to that first episode? So how much time of planning did you do to say, like, we got to put our first episode out? I wrote a full imaginary script first. So I took the uh, templates that I had was seen. Was it full or was it imaginary? I'm, I've been feeling... It's a little both. <laughs> it's, it's in my head. If I had everything, what would I say right now? But it was in fact... Uh, How long was the first episode that you wrote? It was intended to be the script of an hour's worth of show. Because oh, our wow. original concept was a once a week, long form, hour long show where the majority of the content would actually come from the videos of other YouTubers, right? Got it. So rather than us producing a full hour of new content, it was kind of more like Access Hollywood where you'd have some conversation and then clips and conversation and then longer clips and interview where you could just, you know, you could have a conversation for nine minutes and then more clips, right? The idea was that we were not necessarily going to film an hour every week, right? but how do we produce what ends up being an hour's worth of content? And you're, and just so everyone knows, un, un, I guess Unbox is the, the, is the name of the, the app. Name of the Unbox.tv app. and you can get it on iOS or just on the web. And it's really about unboxing videos that there's sort of this cult of, of people who are unboxing products and things? I don't know that I'd use the word cult. No. So um, Black Friday and Cyber Monday this year, more people bought on mobile than wow. in actual retail. Uh, or in, excuse me, an in-person retail. Um, you know, the, the concept of the, the platform came from the idea that there are a number of different trends that we're seeing in not only uh, uh, retail, but also in online engagement. More people are watching videos on their mobile devices than ever. More people are watching those videos longer on average than mm-hmm. ever. More people are buying on mobile than ever. Less people are buying in physical retail. And the number of people who do essentially their own version of Home Shopping Network or QVC at home, whether it's selling products, reviewing them, unboxing them, whatever that the, you know, the, the mix of that is for each individual person, the number of those personalities and their followings 
are growing exponentially throughout the years. And YouTube isn't necessarily doing everything in its power to provide specific product development for right. them, right? They have to build for the lowest common denominator. So whatever they build has to work for a product reviewer, a mom who does baking, a self, you know, a self-building comedian, and your teacher who wants to show a math lesson, right? All of these things came together to show us how Unboxed could be possible and other mm-hmm. verticals in the same kind of way, mm-hmm. not just tech and devices as we focus on, but also toys, beauty and makeup, maybe fitness, home, you know, home goods, et cetera. Okay, so you get all that together, you start with a product and you go, this is the thing we're going to start with. And then you build it and you go, oh, we misunderstood some of these trends. Right, we got to rethink right, some of this. Right. And ultimately you get to a place where, you know, you're like, all right, well, we're going to do the original content ourselves. Mm-hmm. How do we even think about that? Yeah. So getting to that place, I looked at a script and went, okay, well, the first thing I'm going to do is basically build the Jason Nellis show. Yep. And it's just, if I were Conan O'Brien, how would I build an hour of content? God, that was a sh- short conversation. It is, it is not great. <laughs> but, but the script that I built, I took a template from TV scripts that I had seen for years past in working in you know TV production for a brief moment and basically just scripted out like what would be the talking points we would use? What would be the, um, the flow of the show? When would we go back and forth? If I were to actually record that show and put it on video, nobody would watch it. Yeah. It was a complete mess. Mm-hmm. But it gave us a lot of conversation starting places to say, well, we would really, we should aim for this length. We should cut these parts out. And how long was that process of developing that first script? Two weeks. Okay. Maybe fast, three. Yeah, yeah not long. Just not like it you invest a year. In it. Yeah. yeah. It took me two days to really think out and write the script. It took us a little while to get everybody on the same page about what we liked and didn't like about the script. Mm-hmm. And then it was a matter of actually procuring a camera, procuring lights, getting the right microphone and trying it out. And, uh, and that whole process is two and two to three weeks. Yeah. I mean, in terms of getting the cameras to, let's call it four weeks. Yeah. It's called it a month long process. That's great. Um, the first episode we recorded, I could not be more uncomfortable <laughs> and the sound was bad. And the light sounds like a recurring off. theme. Every sort of like new thing, you're incredibly uncomfortable. If I, you're not ready to be uncomfortable in the boy. world of whatever it is you're doing, you should go and just get a nine to five. Yep. Um, it is, it is, going to be a theme of my life. And I cannot think of anybody who is more uncomfortable in more constant states than me, but here I am. And I'm Eureka. still doing it. Yeah. yeah. Um, no, the first episode we filmed, we essentially did small takes that we then pieced together with other videos mm. and unbox daily as the show is called started as really just 45 seconds of introduction from me, auto playing nine minutes of a YouTube video, another 45 second interstitial, and then et cetera. And that format over time, we saw some response to it. We changed the format to be shorter. Then eventually we changed the format to be, pardon me, one self-contained video where we actually, through fair use, pull small clips from other videos and insert them into our own. And right now, that has proven to be the format that we like the most. Mm-hmm. Um, there's pluses and minuses to it sure. like anything else. But if you look at five months of daily work, I think I filmed something like I mean, I think it's seriously like 50 or 60 episodes at this point. Like wow. I have to actually go back and do the count. Yeah. But it's insane. It's an insane number of episodes. And in the same way as like, for those of you who play like World of Warcraft or those kind of things, you play the game where you have to grind something for a couple of days. That's what it felt like over the course of weeks. It was mm-hmm. just the same process over and over again. Little tweaks, learning how to say the right line in the right way, eventually building confidence and learning how to get the right microphones and bringing somebody in to do the editing. Because we started with one of the guys in our office. I can do the editing. It turns out we've got somebody who can do as much editing, if not more, in a faster pace because it's what he does for a living. All that stuff that then eventually comes together for five to eight minutes every day of actually pretty competent content. Mm -hmm. Is it going to win awards and, you know, put, uh, you know, line our pockets with money? Probably not. I'd like to hope, but yeah. probably not. But what it will do, you know, is educate. It has educated me and something like that would educate anyone right. in the ways of learning how to do the thing you want to do right. Even if it's not the way you thought you were going to do it at first. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think you've, as you, as you, you shared earlier, it's helped inform the product. That process of creating has essentially helped you move through cycles on what the end product should be, which right. I think is, is what people sometimes fail to realize is that the process of creating content and and be it a video series like you're doing now or a podcast before or an event, those are just ways to increase the cycle time yeah. that you can learn, which I think is a really interesting insight that you share. I think it's really important to remember when you're building these things that patience is ultimately the one quality everyone has to have. Everyone wants to do it, do it now, do it fast, do it effectively. I want to come down like a hammer and just you know nail this. But the reality is that good work takes time. Good work is geological. It's not instantaneous. Mm-hmm. And um, we're fortunate that uh, you know we've been able to learn a lot in a very rapid pace because mm-hmm. 
we have the, you know, we have the runway to just mm-hmm. say, okay, go to learn about this for six months, go mm-hmm. do it as often as possible, hate yourself, hate the process, hate what you produce and, and then get good at it and mm-hmm. eventually go, I want to share this with people. Yeah. Um, patience is more than anything else, whether it's ingenuity or creativity or risk taking or whatever. I actually believe that the, the core characteristic every entrepreneur has to have is patience because mm-hmm. without it, the rest don't matter. Yep. You can talk about your fast, iterative, lean-based process and use all the buzzwordy buzzwords that all buzz. It doesn't matter right. if you don't give it time. Yeah. So you, I want to I kind of, one of the things that's interesting about you as, as a creator is that you sort of sampled across a lot of these mediums. Yeah. And so part of that in order to, to, to be a rapid learner as you are, as you've sort of self-described and I would, I would concur with is that you have to find people to learn from. Yep. So I want to go through each of the platforms that sure. you've, you've been engaged with and, uh, and kind of do some rapid fire on who are the people that you most learn from. Um, and let's start with the recent one. Uh, who are the people that you find are doing it the best that if you were just starting this process of creating your own video series again, who would you go out and learn from? Who would you study? Who would you watch their episodes to, to, sure. to learn from? So on the, on the actual video production side, the two guys I would point to are uh, Casey Neistat, who is an incredibly famous uh, YouTuber who has broken records in terms of the number of people who follow him, and an incredibly talented filmmaker. And another guy named Peter McKinnon, who is, I think, one of the fastest growing channels on YouTube. I think in a little over a year, he's grown to 1.5 million subscribers from next to nothing. And both of them are incredibly talented videographers. They're incredibly talented editors. Um, and they give a lot of advice on their channels about what equipment they use, how they do it. I think Peter McKinnon sells Lightroom presets so you can actually learn his actual process if you have the, the, you know, the coin for it. But otherwise, it's just here's all of it presented for free. Right. Um, in terms of the unboxing and product reviewers that I would point to, um, I have to be careful about who I say is favorites because we work with a lot of them. Yeah, sure. But I do think that um, there are a couple that I would point to. One is uh, Austin Evans and the guys who are part of what they call Team Crispy. Um, but it's it's Austin Evans, Jonathan Morrison, uh, your average consumer, um, uh, Unbox Therapy, and there's one other I'm going to get yelled at for having forgotten. But these are guys who are all, uh, Marquez Brownlee, uh, MKBHD. These five guys came up at the same time in terms of doing unboxing videos. They all started many, many, many years ago, but they are all incredibly talented at unboxing, reviewing and showcasing that video. Some of them are by themselves. Some of them have whole teams that work with them. But ultimately, what they all provide is a really great template for understanding and seeing what that world presents. Um, Other guys that I would point to, uh, there's uh, Kevin the Tech Ninja, who is a phenomenal talent out of Detroit. Um, There's Andrew Edwards, who's the editor of Gear Live in Seattle. Tech Me Out is a phenomenal talent. She is out of uh, North Carolina, I believe. Um, There's also Crystal Laura, who's out of Jersey. I mean, all of these people... um, you know, Daily Tech in Denver. I mean, all of these guys are remarkable talents who just love what they do and started by themselves. Yep. Nobody here yep. is, you know, even if they're part of production companies and, and multi-channel networks now, none of these guys started right. as, you know, big backed personalities <laughs> who had existing things. Like they were just passionate people yep. who put their passions on film right. and just eventually figured out what they wanted to do. Yep. I mean, particularly like, I love to use these examples, like Austin Evans has done this for eight or nine years and his early stuff is, not great. He would be the first one to tell you. <laughs> yeah. His whole thing is like, it's a screen cap of his iPhone and it's, you know, hi, my name is Austin. Today we're going to be learning. And you know, nowadays he makes me look quiet. Like these are, these are time honed skills right. and they take time and you just have to be okay with that. Yep. Yep. How about, uh, take us into podcasting. You know, obviously it's been a little, little, you know, when you, so, when you were starting out, it was early, right? Yeah. My inspiration was actually more from radio and this is going to sound very silly, but my dad's been in advertising on radio for decades. And for me, he and my stepmother have a, a radio show every week here in DC called Foodie and the Beast. Mm-hmm. And podcasting for me very much came from listening to their yeah. radio show for a decade and learning and understanding how to interview people and how to engage with them. My father every now and again makes it more about him than the show, but he, he's learned over time. He's much better about it now. Uh, but more than that, that learning from them and their dynamic as a pair, as well as them uh, in their interactions with their audiences, um, they have an audience. They have an, a great audience. And, yeah. and seeing them just every week, just consistently doing the same and then increasingly better quality over time is uh, all the, you know, it's all the advice and all the work you need to see to know how to do it right. Yeah. And what's been your, what's been your reaction to seeing podcasting kind of really kind of boom in a lot of ways over the last couple of years since you, you, you yeah. filmed your final episode? Well, I, to me, it's really funny that, 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 you know, for years, everybody has been talking about the death of radio, right? And the, now we're in the death of TV and all that. 
these things don't go away. They transform, right. they, they iterate, they yeah. build and change. And the fact that radio still exists is actually mm-hmm. really like, it's impressive. Clear channel makes a ton of money every year from yep. radio advertisements. Yep. Um, I'm not surprised that podcasting has become a thing. I don't know that I necessarily predicted it as a trend, but in retrospect, I see how it happened and why it happened. Mm-hmm. We are still in many ways, learners by listening. Mm-hmm. Um, there are many people out there who prefer it because they can multitask while they listen to it. Yep. And it's become a much more personal experience. The way that radio was in the early days when everybody would gather around and listen to the shadow, you know, it's this, you know, it's this, this event that has to happen. Right. Um, the appointment part of it has mostly gone away. But if mm-hmm. you look at something like cereal, yep. everybody talked about cereal yep. when it was out. Yep. Everybody wanted to be part of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the way that Game of Thrones is still a thing now that everybody wants to talk about. Full disclosure, I don't watch Game of Thrones, but yeah. it's really good when I do. <laughs> um, mostly though, the old lessons still come back, even on mobile today. One of my favorite apps is an app called HQ, which is a trivia mm-hmm. game. It is live. It happens twice a day during weekdays and once a day on weekends. And it is appointment-based viewing. Mm-hmm. There is no on-demand part of it. There's no version of it you can download and play on your own. It's just, hey, here's, you know, it's nine o'clock, log on, 12 questions. If you make it to the end, you split whatever the pot is with everybody else. Mm-hmm. It is frustrating as all get out that I can't win, mm-hmm. but it has trained me that Every day when I feel the buzz, man, whatever I'm doing, I'm pausing to play. Yeah. Um, radio is of the same vein. Podcasting is of the same vein. It all just changes. Mm-hmm. But it, at the core, the lessons of we're all storytellers and we all want to listen to each other still remains. What about uh, what about events? Any events that you sort of have uh, have great experience events you've had that have informed you that you would point to to learn about how to put on great events? So if I'm looking at events I've participated in rather than events I've worked on, uh, Big, big, big scale events like uh, E3 or Comic-Con of that nature, Mm -hmm. great information on how to really build an event and an experience and when it works and what it doesn't. Comic-Con I love because all the vendors that are at Comic-Con, aside from feeding that nerdy part of me, they all fit the theme. They're all part of a larger community and they all work really well. E3, if you go on the floor of E3, it's whatever brands paid money. And that's not to, to crap on E3. It's just that at a certain point, you're like, well, I got this booth space and I need to sell it. So yeah, M&Ms and DJI, which is a drone company, you guys can coexist in the same space. Right. It makes it a mess. And that's okay. There's lots of other stuff at E3 that's really valuable. Or, I keep doing that. That wasn't E3. That was VidCon. I'm sorry. Sorry, E3. Um, but you know, something like that where yeah. it's, it doesn't fit the theme. VidCon is all about video creators. Why right. is M&M's there? You know, right. something like that. Um, in terms of the stuff that, that is smaller scale, Actually, the best information, like the best informer on that is weddings. Yeah. Weddings and bar mitzvahs. Like, yeah. if you go to a wedding and everything feels seamless and you walk in the door and you are treated like royalty or the guests of royalty, right. and it's all just simple and laid out and you don't have to think about anything, that tells you all you need to know. It's performance, it's coordination, it's resources, it's practice. Mm-hmm. All of that informs it. At a bad wedding or bar mitzvah where things are falling apart and you can see it falling apart or the, you know something goes awry, the, the, the axis of the top spins out of control and it's all a mess. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, having put them on, I can really appreciate how hard that is mm-hmm. and how much work it takes to really get it right and not showing what doesn't go well behind the scenes to your audience is really important. That's interesting. I think it's an interesting way to sort of get some experiences. Hey, why don't, you know, go chase people around at a wedding and see how that experience yeah. goes and, and and learn a lot about how to put on an event that's more like a panel or a sit down, I think is really an interesting yeah. insight. Well, uh, years ago, I took courses on stage management mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I stage manage plays and produce them. And that, it turns out, was I, was very informative to this other stuff in the event space. But what really educated me more than anything else was the, the, the conference that we helped put on that was a thousand people in attendance over two days that required, you know, huge budgets and big names. And we had folks from Google X and, um, you know, the, the then CTO of the United States came and was one of our keynote speakers we had all these great names. And if if they don't feel as though they're right. well treated, as they don't feel as though the experience is, is well managed, you're screwed. Yep. I had to I literally had to personally handle Walt Mossberg from the Wall Street Journal, <laughs> you know, because if somebody didn't, like yeah. he would write would horrific write about things it. about right. us. And instead, I got a LinkedIn invite from him. Yeah. So it all works out. He's like the mother-in-law that he, you gotta make sure is really happy, right? Boy, yes. Yes. It's very happy. Uh Mr. Nellis, this was super delightful. And I think uh, you know, we can we, we can all check you out on, on unbox.tv. Absolutely, and uh, and I think it's it's fascinating to hear your your adventures in touching all of these different uh, these mediums because I think that's sometimes people get wrapped around the well I can't be in you know I can't do video or I can't do this or whatever it is and in some ways you're sort of breaking the mold and and being a renaissance creator and trying all these things whether uh, 
whether in each case you were terrible and had to to grow into them. <laughs> True. But, you know, it's a, it, yeah. it's I think it's instructive for people. I think to know. Well, I appreciate that. I I think the the one parting piece of wisdom I would I would offer is that you never know when relationships are going to be the thing that drives you to your next step. You and I got introduced by Eric Fang all those years ago. Yep. You pawned me off on other people, and that's fine. I, I've forgiven You're you for welcome. that. Um, but those relationships and later yours and my relationship became instructive in many different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I had no idea that that was going to be a thing. I came to you hoping that I would find a job. In fe- instead, I found a friend and a mentor. And ultimately, those relationships have come back to pay dividends when you know when they I have needed them the most. Yep. So you know, to anybody listening, I really offer that patience is an absolute important virtue to have, but also. Being mindful of your relationships, being as generous as you can be. You know, the old adage of karma, what you put out in the world is what you get back. I really do believe in. You don't always get it back in the right amount. Right. You don't always get it back when you think you need it. <laughs> right. But the the you know, the the river bends towards good if you drive it that way. Yep. Play the long game. It seems to always work out for all of us. In the end, I think so. Yeah, it's great. Thanks for coming, Mr. Nellis. Thanks and, for having uh, me. This has been fun. I'm uh, I'm excited to audition one day for your wedding officiant. Uh, you've got a you know, having done it myself, you've got a high bar to hit. Listen, I'm I'm th- I've done three of them, including yeah. an, an Indian wedding, Indian wedding where I was the moderator between a Hindu family and a and a Muslim family. So I have to say, like, listen, if I can navigate that. I can damn near navigate anything. But can you handle a Jewish slash Californian wedding? I'm not so sure. That's a very good point. Mm. More soon. All right. Bye.